Good morning. Good to see everybody in the house of the Lord this morning. It's a great honor to stand before you and read God's Word together and expound God's Word together. Um, I know I say this almost every Sunday, but I am so grateful for the worship team. And because I know the content of the message and Noah picks his songs based on the content of the message, I I think I'm more excited than everybody else because I already know what I'm going to say and preach. But the lyrics to the music this morning were outstanding. And you will hopefully some of those lyrics will come to your mind as you hear what Peter had to say to the church of old. So thank you, worship team. Thank you, Noah. Um, God writes the laws of space and time. What does that mean? We'll find out this morning. And it makes a difference in how we think and how we live. In chapter 2, before we get into chapter 3, in chapter 2, Peter addressed the topic of heresy. There are false teachers in the church. There are false teachers we have to watch out for today. They had to watch out for them in that day. Well, this particular day, this very day, about 500 years ago, actually exactly 500 years ago, the church called out a heretic. Specifically on 41 points of church doctrine. And attempted to excommunicate this heretic. And this heretic bore the name of Martin Luther. And this took place at the Diet of Worms. And you think anybody with a Diet of Worms shouldn't be in the church anyway. But the Diet is just a word for assembly, a meeting or an assembly... And worms is worms, the place in southern Germany. So it has nothing to do with the little things that crawl through the dirt. But this was a pivotal moment in church history. Where this, in this case, a member of the church called for reform in the church saying you have erred in some doctrine. And we know that Martin Luther stood on the doctrine, scriptural doctrine of justification By faith as opposed to penance and indulgence, which in a sense taught that you could earn your salvation. And so this was a huge battle, a pivotal point. And this is, uh, Martin Luther was known for these words as he stood before the church council. And really, in large case, as a matter of life and death, these words could have cost him his very life. And he stood before these people and he said, I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. And so as a result of those words and his doctrinal position, there was a schism in the church. Between the Catholics and the Protestants. And here we stand, 500 years later, proponents of justification of faith. Heretics. It's still a real thing. Peter, in chapter 3, makes a little bit of a uh, transition. And chapter 3 is kind of a mixture between chapter 1. In chapter 1, he was encouraging the saints to grow and the grace and knowledge of the Lord. 
Chapter 2, he kind of zeroed in on false teaching. Chapter 3 is a mix of both, as you will see. And he continues to encourage God's people to trust in God. And in particular, Peter's answer to false teaching and Peter's encouragement to growing in grace and knowledge has to do or rallies around the precious and very great promises of God. It's the Word of God. That's what he draws people to, the Word of God. What we hold here, this, the, these scriptures, the, the 66 books of the Bible, are so instrumental and important. More important, I think, than, than we ever realized. So Peter is calling them back. And he is also confronting the false teachers. And how is he confronting the false teachers? Not based on his opinion or his emotion, but on what God says to be true. Well, in this passage, Peter is going to encourage the saints with this great promise that God made. And that great promise is his second coming. It's the day of the Lord. When Christ will return as the king forever that we just sang about. So this is, there's a great day that scripture teaches that God has revealed to us. According to a promise. And that is that there's going to be new heavens. A new earth. A day where God will bring forth newness. Similar to the day of creation where God thought up, he designed everything and he spoke it into existence. Something similar to that, except it's a regeneration, it's a renewal of things, a redemption of things, is going to take place at some point in time in history. The day of the Lord. As I thought about this passage, this whole idea that someday there's going to be a day of judgment. There's going to be a day of tremendous glory where God fulfills his promises in the ministry of Christ. I thought, where, who, who thinks of this kind of stuff? Where does this come from? And if you look in, in as far as the information that's available in the world today, this kind of belief of a judgment, of accountability, of newness is only found within the realms of faith. Some right faiths and some wrong faiths, right religions, false religions and, and true religions. But this is a matter of faith. It's a matter of revelation. It's a matter of anticipating something that you would not know unless something metaphysical planted in you. So the alternative is that not everybody in this world believes that such a day is coming. Not everybody believes that there's going to be a day of accountability. That actually everything that, that confuses us will make sense in the end. Because it's all on this trajectory of a perfect plan by a sovereign God. Some people say that there will be no end. It will just continue like it is. Uh, mainly atheists say, well, matter is just eternal. It was here when we got here. And it will always be here. It's just a big surprise. Somehow it was just here. How was it here? Just was. That's the answer. Nobody knows. Science can't answer these questions today. It's just a matter of what you're going to choose to believe about beginnings. So this is a matter of faith. This is a matter of revelation. Peter is appealing to the promise of God, what God says, and how truthful he is. And it has purpose and it has meaning. 
So these kind of scriptures that we're going to read this morning really make a difference in how we view the world, how we view each other. Perhaps what we decide we're going to do each day. What we're going to decide we're going to believe and how we decide we will live. It's always interesting to me, by the way, that many of the people who don't believe in meaning because there is no God, it's just we're just material impulses, eternal material impulses. Many of the people that believe that are also the doomsday people that worry us to death about this doomsday idea. So it's interesting that people who say the universe really has no meaning are very concerned about its end. So just in my lifetime, as I thought about different fear-mongering that's taken place to stir us up, I remember when this threat of population control came out. And some of the scientists were saying, we have got to do something. We've got to start culling the herd because at this rate... We're all going to starve to death. There's too many people in this world. And it was this doomsday message. Did it ever happen? No. As a matter of fact, today, it's just, in real life, just the opposite problem. And you will know if you read that many of the nations, including the United States, are not reproducing themselves. So you come together, you get married, and there's two of you, and you're not, re- you're not reproducing at least two of yourselves. I think it's at 1.7 now. And for our country, if it was not for... Immigration, immigrants coming in, we would not have enough people. And other nations are already suffering the consequences of not bearing children. It makes a difference in how the economy and how life rolls around. So popular population control was a huge thing when I was younger. Never happened. Um, then we also, let's see, where, where's the next one? Oh, yeah, the, the meteor that's going to hit the earth and destroy us all. That's kind of like still a threat. We're, we're tracking different meteors. But that was a imminent threat when I was young as well. This idea that you better uh, get your affairs straight because we're about to be struck. We're all going to be destroyed. Now, of course, you will know climate control is the big thing to incite fear in us. We're going to suffocate on all of our carbon Uh, dioxide or uh, die of heat stroke because of global warming. So there's just this constant beration of doomsday predictions, even from people who don't think that it means anything or cares for anything. Or if you watch too much Netflix, zombies are the next thing. Some people believe zombies are coming to get you. Now that would be creepy. So, what's the, what's the big deal about the end time and the day of judgment? And does life and matter and material really exist? Why, is it, why does it even matter at all? Well, it matters because God is the God of space and time. God created all of this. God created us in His image. And every day matters. Every decision matters. Every breath we take matters. It's not enough to just go through life. We were put here to glorify God in everything we do, think, and say. And that alone is a complete game changer. 
And though we might do the same things, we all get up, we put our clothes on in the morning, we go to school, we go to work, we do the same things as everybody else in the world. But there's a difference in those that believe in Christ because our motivation is to do it for the glory of God. Well, Peter's going to kind of take us, the false teachers and whoever else, the church, he's going to take us to school for a little while this morning in this passage as we think about the end of time. So let's read our passage. First 10 verses in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all. That scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Don't want to spend a lot of time on this first point, but I think there's some words in here and what Peter says it's it's worth highlighting. And that is, first of all, what, what's his approach here? He wants to, what I call, stirring the pot. He is purposely trying to stir people's minds, the, the believers, the disciples. He wants to stir up your sincere mind by way of remembrance. And he's stirring them up with the remembrance of the promises by remembrance of the commandments. This helps us understand our hearts. He wants to stir us up to remember things. He's already reminded us that one of the problems of sinful fallen humanity is that we forget very important things. We lose sight of very important things. And he is speaking to established believers. So even... The mature, even the established, there are certain things that we have to make sure we wash our minds with. We remember constantly. There's, there's things that we can't afford to let settle down here and other things come up to the front of our minds. As people of faith, there are church doctrines, promises of God that we need to live by that are always up here. So we have to remind ourselves of these. When I go back to Maryland where I was born and raised, 
I'm, I'm at a terrible deficit with my other siblings because they're talking about, you remember this such and such, I ran into him and you were in second grade with him and you remember, and I'm like, no, I don't. Because I'm not in that atmosphere anymore. I'm not running into people that I went to school with. I'm in a totally different part of the world. And because I'm, I don't get little glimmers or glimpses that spark memories, a lot of them are gone. Well, this can happen with Bible reading. This can happen with doctrine, very important doctrines. And so Peter is saying, ah, bring it back up. Bring it back up. There are some things that just need to be brought back up, and this is one of them. So he is stirring their minds. And that word stirring means to cause. So you're stirring people up with the goal of causing a certain effect. Boy, do we know about being stirred up in our culture today. You can't watch the news a single day without seeing somebody really, really stirred up about something. And the idea is to stir people up for your cause. Fighting injustice or whatever it is in this world. There are so many people that are stirred up. Well, we can be stirred up. It's a good thing. But we can be stirred up for wrong things and wrong motives. Or we can be stirred up for right things. It's okay to be stirred up for the promises of God. It's okay to be excited about those and to rally around the word of God and the things that God has said. Because they are true. But we can be stirred up for ruly things or unruly things. I remember when I went to Bible college as a matter of field education, everybody had to, you didn't just get to sit and study, you had to go out and do actually do the work of the ministry on some occasions. And so we had field education. One of my field education assignments um, was to go to a juvenile detention home and to teach the Bible and then do some one-on-one if somebody wanted prayer or wanted to talk. Lisa went with me a few times. And so you have these guys in orange suits, kind of like Sam's shirt there. They're, they're in their orange jumpers. And it's, not, it's, it's male and female. Um, and it's kind of a dismal atmosphere, but uh, there was a lot of uh, good opportunities to minister to people. But these are, these are young people that have made very unwise decisions, and they're suffering for it. They're, they're basically doing time before they're old enough to do time. But when, when I went in there, what the, um, the, the managers, the guards, they would tell me specifically, do not stir these people up. Do not stir these kids up. And I said, what in the world? Well, what would happen is they would get a, a preacher or a student or whatever, a Christian in there, evangelist in there, that wanted to would get very riled up and emotional and preach these messages about freedom and all this kind of stuff. And it would appeal to the flesh. It was all an emotional appeal, lacking doctrine. And the more stirred up they got, the better he thought, the preacher thought he was doing a great job. But then you have these derelicts who are stirred up. They're wanting to break out. They're wanting to, they were stirred up for unruly things. They're wanting to destroy and throw chairs and desks around the place and and fight the guards and all of this kind of stuff. So they were stirred up. But it was interesting that I was told, do not stir these kids up. So it's a reminder. And what are we being stirred up about in this day and age? Because there are plenty of appeals and plenty of people that want to stir us up. Well, Peter wants us to be stirred up about the fact that the day is coming. When all of this will be made new, heavens and earth 
And we will be called to dine with the king forever at the table of fellowship. There's another word here worth mentioning, and that is not just to be stirred up, but he wants to stir up their sincere minds. Interesting word because it means pure motives. Not everything is done with a pure motive in this day and age. But it means you, you are a people who love God. He's saying you have pure motivations. And what you do is to honor God. It's not like the opposite is the false teachers. Their motivation, well, free sex, greed, whatever else. It's, it's selfishness. It's sinful desires. But I want to stir this doctrine up to you and appeal to your pure minds and your pure motivation. So right off the bat, we're reminded of something I think that's very important. And that is that a large part of ministry is just reminding people of things they already know. Reminding people of things that they've been taught. And it's that constant reminder of the goodness and the faithfulness and the word of God that causes us to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord. So there are things we cannot afford to forget. No matter what is going on in your life or in the world today, press into the word of God and the important doctrines. They're not all that important, but there are things we cannot. And this is one of them because it steers us and guides us. So why is it so important or what is so important that he's stirring us up? And that is the predictions. Remember the predictions. As a people of the book, as a people of faith, we are also people who live by predictions. Our God has predicted things. He's calling the shots. He's telling us what's going to happen. And based on that prediction, here's what I want you to do with your life. It's a very unique feature of Christianity in that we are a people that look for the things to come. We look for what we have been told to look for, and that's how we, one of the ways that we glorify God. So not everything in the Bible is a matter of, everything is inspired, but there are things that we can, we, we might forget, and it's not necessarily going to change our lives for the worse. If you forget the name of that guy who cut off, uh, Peter cut off his ear in the garden, you forget the name of that guy. I know everybody in here knows what his name is. There we go. Malchus. But if you forget those kind of things, names and different laws and so forth, you're not going to lose your place in heaven. But there are things that are important life decisions, main themes. These other things are supporting themes that drive us to a deeper sincerity. So Peter is glad to stir them up about these predictions. So what is happening in this passage? Well, there are people in the church, false teachers, who flat out are denying that Christ is coming back. It's just not going to happen. Don't be stirred up. Don't be living as if and banking on something in the future that's not going to happen. Well, that's a dangerous teaching. That's something that will bear effect. Where's the promise of his coming, he says, that they are saying? So if the second coming is going to give us life-changing hope, we've got to believe it. And some are denying it. In fact, they're scoffers. 
Have you ever been scoffed at? You've, you've been made fun at? You, uh, you've been ridiculed? You know, the, um, they scoffed at Jesus when he was on the cross. They made fun of him. Oh, king of the Jews, are you? Well, if you're, if, you're, if you're so big and powerful, then why don't you just climb off that cross? Get yourself off that cross. It's a mocking, a scoffing. And by the way, this kind of scoffing actually fits right into the end times prediction. Because one of the ways that you know the end times is coming is because scoffers will come and say, uh, actually, no, it's not coming. So what do these scoffers do? Well, Peter says they scoff. It's a cause and effect. And they scoff at these promises. And then rather than living as if Christ is coming back, Peter says they indulge in their sinful desires. You see the difference it makes? When you say there's no accountability, anything that's happened already taken place, it kind of gives me some freedoms that God doesn't give me. It gives me license that God has not given me to live. If I know that mom and dad are never coming home, well, my party's just going to keep on going, right? I don't have to clean up the house and act as if nothing ever happened. It makes, yeah, that really happened one time. It makes a difference in what's going to happen the next day and the day after that. Am I accountable or not? So the church has been infiltrated with false teachers, even in the New Testament. A lot of times we glamorize the New Testament churches, and I know we talk about, let's get back to the New Testament churches. The New Testament churches had problems too. They were filled with what? Sinners and redeemed sinners, just like the churches today. It's the power of God that makes a difference. So one of the teachings that was Paul talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 2, some of those people were saying, oh, well, actually, he already came. And when Scripture talks about being raised with Him again, it's just talking about faith. It's a spiritual thing. He already came. Though so He's not coming back again physically or materially. All kinds of different teachings when uh, come out of people when they look at the Scripture. It's just a myth, the idea that He's coming back. And so it's no wonder that some of these teachers land on immoral teachings... Because that's human tendency. If I'm not held accountable, there's no judge. There's no other judgment coming. Well, I'm going to give myself some freedoms. And we see this with all the different avenues of false teaching. Just enjoy yourself. Enjoy your life. It is what it is. But Scripture has a lot to say about the second coming. We're going to be in this chapter for several more sermons. So... I actually know how many. You don't. I'm not sharing that yet. But it's not that many more. We're going to spend some time in this because it's very, very important. I'm going to preach one sermon just on verse 10, the day of the Lord. So what is the argument? What is the scoffer's argument here? What is their basis? If I'm going to convince you that there is no second coming, here's what they say. Look, just look. Look out the window. Look how life works. Sun comes up, sun goes down. That's just the way nature is. It's the way it's always going to happen. Has it ever really changed in your lifetime or anybody that you've ever known or any history books that you read? This is the way life 
goes. There's no time where there's going to be this drastic doomsday or day of judgment when the earth stops functioning on the cycle that it already is. Nature's just going to keep on doing its thing. There are absolutely no signs that it will ever stop. It's just use your common sense. Always going to be grass, flowers, trees, air, clouds, what have you. No inkling that someday all of this will be rolled up like a scroll, Scripture says. It's all going to be rolled up. No, it's not going to be rolled up. And this idea of being burned with fire, it's nonsense. So here's where Peter takes them and I guess us to school. There's three reasons why this is not true or there's three reasons why Christ is coming again. First, nature is not a law unto itself. Nature is not the God. Nature is not a boss in and of itself. As we sang this morning, God writes the laws of space and time. The reason nature is predictable is because God has written laws into it. He, he has determined the properties and the design and the function of every molecule. And it's all functioning according to His will. It's not a law unto itself. And he appeals to their understanding. Apparently, the false teachers thought, at least believed that God created things because they appeal back to the fathers of old. So we're thinking at least they believe in Genesis that God brought all things into existence and started the cycle of life. But if this is true, and Peter's saying everything in Hebrews, it's all been started and it is continually upheld by the Word of God. He speaks it. He upholds it. Everything is functioning by the power of God. It's not on its own, under its own rulership. So the powers that you say will cause the sun to rise and go back down and all of this, these things that are so predictable, they're operating according to the power of God's Word. God spoke it to be like that. And guess what? God could speak again and change it all up because he is in charge of it. Now, even today, much of science says that nature is a law unto itself. And the Bible says, no, nature does what God instructs it to do. There is something behind it. And he can speak and change it. And that's the purpose or the idea of the second coming is that he will once again speak into creation and the molecules will obey him and become something else that he desires them to be. And that's your new heavens and your new earth. And it will not come with a whisper. When Christ comes again, it will be a shout, a trumpet blowing. It's going to be a lot of noise here. A cry of a command. Second reason. Nature has not always been constant. You say, well, there's, there's been no change. Well, what about the days of Noah, Peter says? Uh, that was, there was nothing normal about the days of Noah where God, as a result of judgment for people continually doing evil, flooded the entire world. We haven't seen anything like that because God promised we won't until the second or till the uh, second coming of the Lord. 
It was flooded from the rain above. It was flooded from the waters below. So no, we can't count on every day just continuing like it does today. There were no sunny days in the days of the flood. And by the way, God, if he did it back then, can he not do it again? So you see how Peter's kind of taking him to school? Think about what you're saying. What you're saying. Think about what you actually see because you're looking out and drawing this conclusion, but that's not correct. Even in your own world. And then lastly, God has a different perspective on time. Because they're like, you know, really? You still believe God's coming back? You see how much time has passed and you are still holding on to that myth. It's ridiculous. Peter says, no, actually, it's ridiculous to not understand time as the way God created it or brought it into existence. Now, this is a very, very helpful thing to know about God, right? As we live every day, because we are a people that are bound to time. And that's okay. God created it that way. But we have, we have limitations that God does not have. And we can't expect God to look at things in the way that we look at him, at them, and that is in particular time. And there's this big theme in Scripture, waiting on God, waiting on God. Because a lot of times, a lot of life is waiting on God. We're in a bigger hurry in some things than God is. Noah mentioned it this morning. If you ever wondered, what is taking you? So, okay, I believe you're coming back, but what's taking you so long? Can't you see the mess that we are making down here on earth yet again? I mean, how long will we have to tolerate the brokenness and the pain and the suffering and the injustice and and the relativism and, and people not making sense about anything, including myself? How long, oh God, will we be stuck in this form of misery? And well, at least now we know to some degree... God's not in the kind of hurry that we are in. God has a little bit of a different agenda here. We'll talk about this again. It's actually Peter at the the end of the chapter. He calls what we're living in now, if you look at it from God's perspective and not man's. You got the Renaissance and the the Industrial Revolution and so forth. But if you look at the world and, and its dynamic through God's eyes, we are in a specific age. Of redemption, and it's called the age of salvation. This is the age where God is doing His thing, and that is calling people to repentance. We don't have to wonder about that. What are you doing, God? Well, this is the age of repentance. When He comes again, a different era enters into it. So God's perspective needs to be our perspective. We'll talk about that again. So why so long? Well, from God's perspective, really hasn't been that long, the way that he looks at time. We can take this two different ways. One is that God is outside of time, right? He's outside of time. He's not bound by it. He creates time. It's something, it's his tool, it's his instrument to serve his purpose. He's everywhere present at all time, something that we cannot be or do. Time doesn't age him. Doesn't make his back ache, doesn't make him forget. Time has no effect or hold on him. God controls time, time does not control God. 
And then second, it's the notion of yet how God interacts in time. Though he is above it, he is not bound to it. He interacts with it. There, there are points in time. There are appointed times where God does things. And because we're created in the image of God, we look at time somewhat like God. There are things that are very important and things that aren't so important. There are urgencies and so forth. But God does interact with time. He experienced time. Of course, he experienced it in the flesh through the incarnate Son of God, who was on a timely schedule. He, he talked about the hour all the time. It's, it's, the hour hadn't arrived. The hour hadn't arrived. There was an hour in the experience of time. So, it's a perspective. You know this. You know that as you age, your perspective of time changes. And we, we, we find ourselves saying, there's just not enough hours in the day. Wait a minute. Everybody has the same amount of hours in the day. The hours in the day didn't change. What changed? Your schedule or your perspective of time. So we, hear, we, we might hear an elderly person say, you know, it seems like just yesterday that we were married. Or you might hear a parent say to their child who is now having a child of their own. It seems like just yesterday I was bouncing you on my knee. You see, the different perspective of time. When I was a kid in elementary school, my summer vacations, they felt like eternity. Like it just... I couldn't believe how much time I got to not go to school. It was incredible. And then as I got older, it's like, man, what happened to summer? What Going to school again already? Time and perspective. So, and it also depends on the moment that we're in. So sometimes we just were impatient and it seems like things take forever. Like if you are waiting in a doctor's office. Takes for... Or if you're really hungry and you're in the drive-thru. It's really only three minutes in real life, but you just think three hours just pass because you're starving. You see, it works both ways. If you're a bull rider, eight seconds, it might seem like eight hours. So it really depends on what we're experiencing. And sometimes... We say time flies when you're having fun. Joy can make a difference in our perspective of time. It's like, whoa, time, it's been all day already. If you go out on a, a date or something with somebody you really like and your parents put a curfew on it, like, man, it's time to take you home already? It all depends on our perspective. And we can even lose sense. We can be so excited or engaged in something we can lose sense of real time. All this happens in our little world. Can you imagine the mind of God? It's a perspective. And then secondly, and I'll hit this a little harder in the sermons to come. It has to do with mercy. God's patient. You know, we, we want to, later Peter will say, we want to hasten the day of the Lord, but yet not work against God. Because God's patient. What's he patient with? Sinners. The number has not come in yet. Those that he is going to enjoy the new heavens and the earth with have not all come into the fold. 
So you're kind of left as we close. You're left with, with this picture, if you will. Jesus is the good shepherd. And there are sheep scattered all over the hills. And there, some have, he's gone and got some, and some are coming into the fold. But there's still some here and way over on the other side of that hill, and there's still some scattered. But the plan's in operation, the shepherd's doing his thing, and he is wooing the sheep into the pen of eternal life. But we're just not all there yet, and the shepherd is patient. And he will say to us, who want him to come right now, patience. I'm still doing my thing. And there are others just like you that need my love and need my grace. And we're a people of grace. What's the difference between me and an atheist? Or what's the... An atheist who doesn't even believe in... in has no basis for meaning or believe in God. Sometimes I don't know what's worse. To be somebody who just doesn't even believe in anything... Or to be somebody who thinks they believe in truth and doesn't. A false religion. What's the difference between me and those two? The grace of God. God, the good shepherd, he pursued my wayward mind and my wayward heart. And he gave to me truth as a gift. And not just the written word, but Christ who remains in me and abides in me and holds me. And so we want to be a people that live excitedly and allow this idea that there will come a point in time in history where Jesus will return and take his people home and it should affect what we believe and how we live. May God bless the preaching of his word.